Hello and welcome back to Credal Catholic. I'm back from my month and a half long or so hiatus. Uh, it's basically lined up with the Easter season, um, and it's been a great time to uh, to refresh a little bit, to think about some programming, and to record a lot of episodes. So I've got a lot of great content coming your way uh, beginning today. Uh, but just to give you a, a sneak preview of some of the things that I have coming down the line, I'm talking to Simone Rizcala again about the life of a great saint and doctor of the church talking to a consecrated virgin about how she discerned that vocation. I'm doing a series on Protestant Reformed theology with Casey Chalk, who's reappearing on the podcast. And we're walking through in a five-part series, um, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, and we'll talk more about all that. Uh, Not confirmed yet, but I'm going to try to get John Waters uh, back on the show for a discussion of Give Us Back the Bad Roads, his book, his recent book. And in fact, John's had kind of an interesting... uh, interesting couple of experiences since he was last on the podcast when we talked about the two popes. Um, he has since run for parliament in Ireland unsuccessfully, although I think he was um, he was trying to make a statement more than anything when I talked to him about it. He said that, um, you know, even just a few weeks prior, he didn't realize it was going to happen, but then it did. And I think um, he was able to articulate some, um, some of his ideas in doing so. And I think that was his goal. Uh, he's also been involved in a lawsuit against the Irish government um, over coronavirus restrictions. Um, and I really don't know enough uh, to know whether or not I agree with his thinking on that, but I'd love to sit down with him and just talk to him a little bit more about that. I think that'd be interesting. I'm certainly sympathetic to um, to uh, people who are challenging uh, government overreach in the light of coronavirus. I think it's been interesting to see how our society in general has responded or failed to respond uh, or responded uniquely to um, what has been a, uh, a devastating pandemic for many um, and a not at all devastating pandemic for many more. Um, and I don't mean that at all to, to um, minimize the real suffering that has gone on. Um, but if you look at just the, the geographical distribution of the, the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, it's concentrated in a few key areas. I mean, New York is the main epicenter. Um, Detroit, Michigan has a number of cases, Chicago, Los Angeles, I mean, big cities, New Orleans. Um, but then there are large swaths of the country that have not been affected. And I think um, it, it's interesting to see the, the polarization that's happening from that and, and the finger pointing that goes along with that. Those who feel unaffected by the virus um, point to uh, government and just say this is a power grab by the people in charge. Those who have been seriously affected in a medical sense um, by losing a family member or having a brush with death themselves um, then look at all of those, the people in the former camp and point fingers and say, why do you want to kill me or kill my grandma or, or whatever? There's a, there's a lot of finger pointing going on. There's not enough um, stepping back and thinking uh, carefully about this. Um, and so what I want to do today is a little bit of that. Now, it's going to be in a different sense. We don't talk about policy at all, um, me and Father uh, Giambrone today. But what we do talk about is what uh, Father Giambrone calls the final why why coronavirus? What is coronavirus? Is it appropriate to think of coronavirus as something from God? Um, or do we do we hold that um, God cannot possibly cause a pandemic, um, as the German Bishops Conference uh, recently declared? So we talk about all these ideas and more. It's a really good conversation, but I wanted to say thanks for sticking with the feed in the hiatus. Um, thanks for giving me the, the time to step back and prepare some new content. And I hope you enjoy this and many of the other episodes that we have uh, coming along soon. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Credal Catholic. uh, And we'll be back with more next week. Enjoy this conversation with Father Giambrone.
All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today, I'm joined by Father Anthony, Anthony Giambrone, who is a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, uh, which is uh, the Eastern province of the United States. And he's professor of New Testament and vice director of the, uh, please excuse my French father, uh, École Biblique et Archéologique Française in Jerusalem. Très bien. I, I know I totally butchered that. Very good. <laughs> but it's the, it's the French school of Bible and theology in Jerusalem. Uh, he's authored more than 200 academic and popular publication, publications focused on a range of biblical and theological themes. His most recent forthcoming works are One Sacrifice for Sins, A Biblical Theology of the Priesthood, published by Baker Academic uh, this year. And he's the editor of Rethinking the Jewish War, Archaeology, Society, and Traditions, also forthcoming this year. Presently as a visiting Humboldt Fellow at Ludwig Maximilians Universitat in Munich, his project is a book exploring the ecclesiology of Acts. Lots of fantastic stuff in there, Father Anthony. Welcome to Creedal Catholic. Thank you. So, dear listeners, I first came across Father Anthony's work, um, and I've, I've explored a little bit more of it uh, since coming across a lecture that he gave uh, in the beginning of April for the Thomistic Institute. Uh, the Thomistic Institute, by the way, is a fantastic resource, lots of podcasts, lots of resources from great uh, theological thinkers, and it is run by the, uh, the Eastern Province, uh, of which uh, Father Anthony is a part. And on April 2nd, Father Anthony gave this great lecture on that podcast feed called Plagues, What We Can Learn from the Bible. And in it, he did not shy away at all from these questions about you know, whether or not God causes plagues, what the final why uh, of a plague is, what the Bible teaches us about um, plagues and pandemics and everything. And I thought it was a really fascinating lecture and would be a great opportunity to get him on the podcast and uh, talk to you, my listeners, a little bit more about some of those ideas. So, Father Anthony... Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about these topics with you today, uh, but something else caught my eye in your lecture, or caught my ear, I should say, and that's when you uh, described um, uh, Emmanuel Macron of France as your sometime breakfast partner. So, is this actually true? Do you have breakfast with uh, <laughs> with Macron from time to time? Um, I probably should have said my one-time breakfast partner, <laughs> um, and actually all he had was coffee. No, 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 that's, well, yes, I mean, that that's all true, and he does like Pop-Tarts, and I know that, but... Um, I'll confess we're not too close. He, he just came visited because, um, being the, uh, the, the, the French school in Jerusalem, uh, the French are a tribal people. And when the president comes to town, he comes to the Ecole. So we, we, we had him over and, uh, I got to eat croissants with him. Very nice. Um, yeah. now, now obviously France is a country with a rich and storied history, uh, of the Catholic faith. Uh, but it's also a country that's lapsed into um, secularism uh, much since then, at least. Uh, mm. I, don't, I don't even know. I should know. Does, is Macron a professing Catholic? He's, he's interesting. He's probably representative of, of a huge um, percentage of the population. So he's, he's baptized, though in his case, it's more interesting that he actually um, discovered the faith as a teenager and, um, you know, um, uh, asked for baptism at, at 16 um, and had a, had a kind of period of, uh, you know, maybe more devout practice, um, became the uh, custodian of, of a kind of famous French thicker, thinker, uh, Paul Ricoeur, um, when he was in his old age, but and was trained by the Jesuits and so forth, um, but not a very observant Catholic at this point, and I don't think would, would identify too, too strongly with, with that history. 
Yeah, that, that makes sense. I think uh, it, it seems to be a fairly common story. And I can't speak, I haven't spent much time in France, so I can't speak for the French people, but at least seems to be a common story across the Western world more broadly. These people who um, come to some understanding of faith uh, have a maybe perhaps a beginning appreciation for the sacraments, but they fail to dig deep into the Catholic tradition. And so as they grow up and they, uh, they figure out that there are many competing ideas out there, they tend to, I think, sort of backtrack from the core tenets of the faith throw up their hands and say, it's complicated, but I believe in the existence of a higher power mm-hmm. uh, in some way, but we can't know too much about it. So I don't even try. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. I mean, there's a kind of encroaching secularism that um, can easily defeat an under-catechized and, and prepared Catholic. And a lot of people fall victim to that. Um, it's a shame. I mean, there's, there's a huge cultural, I mean, meaning artistic and intellectual heritage in the, in the church there in France, but uh, not, not everyone has access to it. Well, it does make me grateful to know that God is still acting in history. And that brings us to the topic of today's podcast, which is this, this current pandemic and God's role in it. And I think it's become a, uh, it, it's become sort of a challenge to uh, secular and religious minds alike. Uh, but for different reasons, I think it's a challenge to religious minds because we wonder how can God let something like this happen? Or we question what is God's role in this? What is God's agency? Um, is God in somehow in, in some way causing this? Or do we agree with the German Bishop Conference, as you uh, mentioned in your lecture, that you know God is not the author of plagues ever, full stop? Um, and then mm-hmm. to the secular mind, I think this is challenging because as you, uh, as you pointed out in your lecture, the, the plague is not a modern thing. Um, it, it conjures up images of the Black Death, perhaps, and the most extreme examples uh, that swept across Europe in the uh, 15th century or 14th century. Um, but maybe more recently, the Spanish influence of 100 years ago. But that's still 100 years ago, um, you know, long before all of the advances of modern medicine that we now enjoy today. So this pandemic has caused even the secular mind to confront some big questions that we, I think, aren't used to confronting. Um, and mm-hmm. you start your lecture with a quote from uh, Albert Camus' um, novel, uh, uh, or, or a novel of Albert Camus. W- w- what's the novel called again? The Plague. The Plague, of course, yeah. Fittingly. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's called The Plague, and there's this character, Dr. Ryu, in there who says that the plague is not a modern way to die. Uh, it was a fitting right. way to start your lecture, I think. But what, mm. do, what do you think uh, Camus is meaning by that when he, when he has the character of Dr. Ryu declare that, that the plague is not a modern way to die? I think you already kind of put your finger on it. I mean, <clears throat> it, we, we have these images of, uh, you know, middle ages and flagellants and, um, you know, people who don't know what germs are, uh, who are subject to these you know, um, natural phenomenon that they, that they can't understand. And so they, they, they turn it into a story about God, a myth about God, something like that. Um, we're much more enlightened now. Now we have, you know, modern science and we have clean hospitals. We know what germs are and so forth. So we're not going to be subject to <clears throat> either to the, you know, the, uh, the, the spread of disease in in stupid preventable ways or, the, the, the kind of um, uh, cosmic illusions that that might have seduced earlier generations. So I think it's it's basically just an expression of this massive alienation, maybe from what what had been a pretty consistent experience of the human race for a few millennia, that uh, we feel ourselves separated from. 
Yeah, that all makes sense. And, and there's no, there's a part of your lecture where you talk about how um, COVID-19 is a distraction. And I want to dive into that a little bit more. Mm. Um, in what you just said, you were making me think about how the modern mind realizes uh, that we know so much more about the natural world than we once did. And so where we once may have attributed plagues or infectious diseases to, you know, bad humor or, you know, just a lack of understanding of uh, microbiology. We don't, you know, we didn't know about germs and um, how viruses work and the, the mechanistic processes behind those things. Or perhaps even we had this sort of superstitious, almost karmic idea of, of how and why people got sick. And all of that kind of goes out the window when we now understand the exact mechanics, biomechanics of a, of a virus or a bacteria or a fungus or a parasite, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, but I think one of the risks of that, which you illustrate in your lecture pretty well, is that if we, we, if we get so preoccupied with, with this sort of physical question of why, we get distracted from the big question of why. I think it, it, you call it the final why. But can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that, how COVID-19, while, while presenting a sort of radical challenge to our secular modernist assumptions, um, also perhaps paradoxically distracts us from asking the ultimate questions? Right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think Camus is still helpful here. So he gives us this doctor, medical doctor, um, who kind of represents our modern perspective, you know, technical perspective, uh, scientific perspective on all of these things. But he's contrasted with this foil of this this kind of old wild man priest um, who is a relic from the Middle Ages in his own way and has these harangues from the pulpit and so forth. So I think um, what he's trying to, to articulate there for us is, is something helpful. Um, on the one hand, there's this explanation, okay, this, this happened by what we would say is a kind of uh, material um, or uh, um, efficient causality. Okay. So just um, a series of, atoms, you know, hitting one another, um, or if you want, just this spherical single strain RNA virus, you know, a protein molecule, a limpid envelope has these club shaped projections. And that's, that's all we're talking about. In fact, it's quite remarkable, actually. I mean, I had watched a couple of these little programs just trying to explain what, what COVID-19 is. And um, some of them really get evangelical about this, um, that this is only a piece of protein and it's nothing else. And if, if you see anything else in this whole pandemic, I mean, you're, you're a wild fanatic. So it's, it's this microscopic view, I mean, in, in the strongest sense of the term, that's contrasted then with, you know, this vision embodied by, by the priest who thinks, okay, well, it's, it's there because of your guilt or, you know, there's, uh, there's some act of God here. Um, so I think that's, that's the, the dilemma that's at work. And that's why I say as, as a bit of a provocation that COVID itself, I mean, this, this coronavirus is, is the immense distraction because, I mean, when you, when you look at what we do. I mean, we mobilize um, all of the um, collective forces um, of the entire um, governmental medical establishment of the planet, um, you know, course, <laughs> the cooperation of, of every individual, all just to defeat this 
you know, 100 nanometer molecule um, as though that's our real enemy, you find yourself in this stupid situation that Camus rightly understood as absurdity. Um, it, it's, it's Sisyphus. Um, so we might beat COVID-19. Hopefully we will. We probably will. We've, we've beat other viruses in the past. You know, we beat smallpox. It was a brilliant um, chapter in, in the first chapter in, in the history of, uh, uh, of you know, uh, the, the young science of virology. Okay. So maybe we'll get, you know, a vaccine and, and beat this, but then, you know, there was SARS-1, there's SARS-2, there'll be SARS-3, who knows. The point is death will keep rolling back against us as we push and push and push against us, against it, you know, with all our um, scientific and, and technical know-how. And so to, to me, the, the great danger is you focus so much on beating this tiny little thing, which is, okay, you know, a, a, a deadly flu that's that's passing around and uh, imperiling us in, in very real ways. But what we fail to notice is we're being confronted with our mortality, which is a lot bigger than just COVID. I mean, people die for all kinds of reasons. And this is the much more interesting and important fact in a way. And this is what a pandemic throws in our face is death with a, with a big capital D. I appreciate the way that you illustrate how a Christian should think about these things or maybe suggest some ideas, a framework for thinking about these things by referencing the Old Testament. And you talk about the occurrence and recurrence of biblical plagues in the Old Testament, uh, not least, of course, when um, God freed the Israelites from bondage and uh, allowed Moses to lead them out of Egypt uh, towards the promised land. But then you say that we live after Moses in an after virtue sort of way. Of course, after virtue referring to the uh, great philosopher Alistair McIntyre's work uh, on that. But can you talk a little bit more about that? How how are we living after Moses? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a little quip there, but the the sense, I mean, so McIntyre's thesis is that we have the the scraps. Um, of a kind of coherent worldview that are still jingling around in our language. So we still talk about virtue and all of these things, but we don't have the, the coherent framework in which they make any sense. I think there's something similar, I guess, to the way there's still fragments and scraps of, of biblical literacy. I mean, it's, it's evaporating and, uh, and disappearing quickly, but um, we, we have these um, disconnected elements um, of a worldview that once made sense, um, which are, I guess, um, at most an impediment um, today to, to, to reinserting ourselves um, into a faith perspective uh, informed by, by the light of revelation. So we live after Moses, I'd say, um, because between here and there, so the Bible's filled with, I mean, um, sins, sparking angry plagues come a dime a dozen. They're just all over the place. Um, and again, back to, you know, it's not a modern way to die. There's so much between us and you know, the episode of the golden calf where God sends a plague immediately or um, uh, the, the the complaining about the man of God sends a plague immediately and so forth. Um, we 
on the one hand, I mean, there's the difference between the pre and the post-Christian worlds, um, but there's also a great deal of both real and pretended enlightenment. So, I mean, science is a real thing, modern science. It's not that we want to deny this in any way. Um, there's this um, extraordinary Greek journey um, from myths to philosophy, you know, this this kind of entrance uh, out of, you know, what was a, a, a kind of more ignorant approach to the world. There's the blending of this Greek wisdom uh, to Israel's Bible um, and its Christian God. And then we have the whole, uh, you know, modern uh, enlightenment, uh, Kant, um, these sorts of things uh, in which God himself becomes a kind of fading postulate of practical reason. So anyway, all of which is is just to, to underline the quite obvious point that it's very hard for us to accept a biblical perspective on things as as valid or as um, you know making any claim on on you know modern reality it just feels too far away right and i really appreciate what you said there about how modern science is real and those who are advocating a biblical perspective on these things like yourself are not saying otherwise you're not saying right. this is god not a yeah. virus right i mean the the, the, right. the two are not uh, mutually exclusive they're not incompatible I think right. the biblical perspective um, would be that God is, in fact, the final why of this virus, and the way mm-hmm. that the way that His purposes are accomplished are through this nanometers long, um, uh, you know, collection of proteins that is uh, SARS-CoV two, which causes COVID. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about this biblical perspective a little bit more because this is pretty complicated, and on the topic of sort of neglecting. Uh, the 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 acts of God or the purpose of God in this thing. One of the most disturbing episodes for me of this has been how the church itself in some quarters has tried to undercut that thesis. And mm. I'm thinking of something that you also mentioned in your lecture, the German Bishops Conference, who said that sickness is not a divine punishment. Um, there's a, a bishop uh, in the German Bishops Conference who has gone further and said that basically since uh, since God sent his son to die on the cross, he hasn't known any thoughts of punishment. Um, so that seems to su- suggest some sort of discontinuity between the, between the old and new testaments, or at the very least, some sort of, um, rupture in the nature of God that he hasn't known thought since X time. Um, but it seems to me that if you're going to take the position of the German bishops conference, uh, you're going to have to either say that, uh, the old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Uh, you're going to have to issue some interpretation of the old Testament that is quite tenuous and novel and probably wrong. Or you're going to have to claim that there is some sort of discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments. So, mm-hmm. um, first of all, do you agree with that that sort of um, positioning of the argument? Uh, and second, mm-hmm. how how can we make sense of these Old Testament things? So, uh, the the right. second question there is a really big one, um, and we can break it down <laughs> a little further. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, in in fa- well, in fairness to the to the German bishops, they're not alone here um, in in saying this. It's kind of a, a pervasive you know, um, uh, I don't know, approach to this situation, certainly perspective, and it probably just underscores this after Moses kind of uh, perspective. We can say it's also after Jesus. And so after Jesus, you know, um, Old Testament just kind of fades away. Um, I mean, there's, there's, that's an old heresy. I mean, it's not, it's not a new problem in a way. I mean, so actually very shortly after Jesus, we have, um, uh, the Martianite heresy, which which does introduce not just um, 
you know, a kind of distinction between the Old and New Testament. But I think, as you rightly see there, um, uh, you kind of introduce a cleavage into God. So it actually ends up with two gods. You have the God, the angry God of the Old Testament and and the, the, the happy, fuzzy God of Jesus. Um, in, in terms of, I mean, you don't want on the one hand, I mean, I think it was your, your third of the, uh, uh, the trichotomy there. I mean, there is a kind of discontinuity um, in continuity uh, presented by the New Testament. So it's not that we uh, we deny the the novum represented by the revelation of Jesus. But the thing is, it's the same God, the one author of the Old and New Testaments, the one God who is the Father of the Son, um, who is Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I think what you have to understand is that. Um, the the new clarity of revolution of revelation that's um, accessible in the incarnation, the resurrection, exaltation of our Lord illumines the Old Testament in a new way. So um, we read the Old Testament in in the light of the new, just as we understand the new and in, in light of the prophetic trajectory of the old. So binding the two together is 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 quite important, and to that extent, the continuity, I guess. Um, needs to be uh, forcefully asserted. Um, I, I gave in, in the lecture one, one example of what I think is a Christological reading of a plague in the Old Testament. I think um, this, this famous story of uh, David in 2 Samuel 24, where he gets a choice of punishments and... Uh, and chooses the plague. I think it's it's a prophetic story that's actually pointing very directly to Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, um, pointing to his sacrifice on the cross. And so this is how the kind of backwards look um, from Jesus into the Old Testament validates you know, what, what God has always been doing. And to that extent, I guess, clarifies what, what he's still up to. So, I mean, with, with due respect to the new um, president of the, the German Bishops Conference, he um, it doesn't seem that he's read too widely in the New Testament because, I mean, it's it's very, very clear that, I mean, the very first, <laughs> the very first um, chapter chronologically that appears in the New Testament, first chapter of First Thessalonians, St. <laughs> Paul says very, very clearly that the, the wrath of God has been revealed. I mean, so... It's not that this this idea just goes away. Um, it's reconfigured. Um, it's uh, you know it's 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 understood in a new light in terms of you know the the project God always had that we can find salvation from the punishment due to our sins. So I mean, in in the story with David, there it's 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 quite a quite an interesting intricate thing i don't need to go into all the details but the 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 key point is that this thing would annihilate everyone okay the power of uh, of punishment brought on by sin um imperils everyone okay and there's actually a kind of image here of original sin um in the way that the the sin of one man um brings the, the 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 disastrous fate upon the nation. Okay, but um, it's it's interrupted. It's stopped by God's mercy, in fact. And David's choice for the plague is actually 
he articulates it as uh, he wants to fall into the hands of God rather than the hands of man because God is merciful. So God's mercy is actually the point of the story. And the plague ends on the very site of the temple. An angel shows up and stops the thing. Um, and that's very clearly in context meant to be a prophecy that this is the place where sacrifice is going to be offered. And that sacrifice is going to atone for sin. It's going to stop the punishment of sin. That sacrifice of the temple is itself a prophecy. So we have a prophecy of a prophecy of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that's going to show up and plant its um, foot in the ground and say, you know, thus far you shall come and no farther. So, I mean, the, the, the power of mercy, I think this is the problem. Um, we, we rightly understand that Jesus came to proclaim the mercy of God. The, the power of mercy is measured by its strength to overcome an already strong wrath. Um, I mean, mercy doesn't make any sense if it doesn't intervene to save us. Um, I mean, there's lots of literary examples we could come up with this. Um, uh, I mean, the um, there's Mozart has a, a great uh, opera, um, the Clemency of Titus about the Emperor Titus, and um, his clemency, his mercy is shown at the end of, of the whole story by the fact that he's completely justified. Um, in in punishing his friend who betrays him, okay? But he doesn't, okay? It's because he deserves a, a capital punishment. Everyone thinks he's going to just put him to death, but instead he, he, he forgives his sin, okay? We only see that because the guy's guilty. Um, so I think in, in the same way, you, you don't understand the, the, the significance of, of the New Testament if, if you don't understand... To, I mean, the deadly power of sin. And, and so this back to death with a capital D, I mean, what, what's the death we're really talking about? What's the, the punishment we're really concerned about? Um, you know, is it, is it ultimately just falling to COVID or is, is it the second death of revelation? So I think that's, that's the bigger framework you have to, you know, put an interpretation. I mean, a, a biblical worldview into, but uh, this this effort to draw the continuity and discontinuity uh, between the Old and New Testaments. Yeah, thank you for that. I just a quick note on your the passage in Second Samuel that you talked about, in which David is choosing between the various forms of punishment from God. Uh, I appreciate your exposition of that in the lecture itself, and elaborated on just now, and how it's that in, in itself is an anticipation of Christ. But it just occurred to me that. He has the choice of choosing three days pestilence and three days of death uh, in atonement for the sins. And that uh, that alone foreshadows the three days that Christ spent in the grave, which is pretty cool. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, I mean, th I think this is the way we need to, to approach the, the, the continuity between the Testaments is that the Old Testament is, in fact, always talking about the revelation of Christ. Now, this... This does get at, I think, a fundamental problem um, that I've come across in doing apologetics uh, that I think I sometimes sort of fall into myself, and that's to, to sort of create a dichotomy between the Old and New Testaments. When I'm doing apologetics, it's, it's pretty easy to talk about Jesus Christ dying for you. Now, it might be hard to talk about Jesus Christ as God incarnate, and that's, that's kind of a tougher pill for people to swallow, but the message of the cross is an attractive one for people that that the creator of the universe does love them enough to die for them, et cetera. 
but, mm-hmm. but then I've had pushback when people look at the old Testament and say like, what about, what about this? I think you mentioned the ban in Joshua, right? When, when, mm-hmm. when God says go and kill everybody here, et cetera. Now there are right. some, there are some sort of interpretative, um, uh, things that you can do to make those passages a little more palatable perhaps, but fundamentally there's still the problem of God acting through history in these sorts of ways in sending a plague, for example. Right. And so if we're going to say that God does act through history, including by sending plagues, how do we get around this problem of God not being the author of evil? Well, I mean, I think, yes. I mean, so, so God's acting in history. He's doing these sorts of things. I mean, we need to understand a couple, at least <laughs> a couple of things. I mean, um, on, on the level of his action in history, we need to understand primary and secondary causality. We can come back to that. Um, on, on the level of the text, you know, when we're reading these, these passages like the ban and Joshua or something, it's also important, I guess, that we have a, you know, a sophisticated uh, manner of interpreting. Um, so this, this, this is a good instance. Uh, as modern people, we're very good at watching movies. Like we just, it, we get it naturally. It's quite easy. I know how to watch a movie. Um, we're very bad at reading like um, Semitic texts from the second millennium BC. That's, <laughs> right. that's hard. Yeah. Um, it takes a little bit of work, but it's, it's actually not so complicated. So when I watch um, a world war two movie by the, you know, by the literary genre, the Germans are bad guys. I don't care if they have families. They're just, they're bad guys. And so you, you know, that's, that's how it works, which is different than, um, you know, like in Saving Private Ryan, there's this moment where the two soldiers, you always have these in war movies. There's the moment where the two guys meet and they realize they're people and they're not just bad guy, good guy. It's like orcs. Orcs don't have families like in Lord of the Rings. They're just bad guys. This is, they're bad guys in the Bible too. And um, sometimes I think we just have a, a naive sense that, that ancient people couldn't think the way we did. So like Egyptians getting, you know, plunged into this, you're not asking, you're not asking uh, the, the question about their families or, or the ban. You're not asking that the, the Canaanites are the bad guys. So I think in some ways this is, this is, also just an invitation to um, a different kind of uh, approach to the, to the literature that we're reading. And like I said, um, in terms of the history itself, I think we need to, to understand, and this is more of a philosophical than exegetical point, but need to understand um, how primary and secondary causality works. That's, that's a kind of fundamental metaphysical, um, certainly very Thomistic distinction to make, but, but God is the primary, primary cause of no evil. Um, and I think this, this puts us into a, uh, uh, you know, a paradigm, uh, point of view, uh, in which we can understand a little bit his, his agency, um, even in, uh, in something like, you know, the COVID pandemic is God's, God's operative, God's, God's an ultimate cause, uh, behind these things, um, which doesn't necessarily need to make him um uh the 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 direct efficient cause so that's that's back to this this point i mean you you alluded to it earlier i mean in terms of different causes kinds of why are we talking about the basically the mechanical how um which is basically just a chain of you know it's a domino chain from 
let's say um, these these wet markets in Wuhan, you know, to to um, you know international travelers to you know someone someone in a nursing home in New York or whatever. I mean, there's 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 physical chains of uh, causality and and that's efficient causality but that's that's a different order of agency than than other sorts of metaphysical causality like the final cause like why is this happening in the sense of um for what purpose is this happening um so i mean once we can start to make those kinds of distinctions we can see in what ways god is involved in something and is not involved in something and in that way, you know, our theodicy to to free him of um, <laughs> of our own guilt. I mean, this is kind of the remarkable thing is we have a man, we've managed to, to project our own human guilt onto God, um, but how we can free him from the, the, the guilt, um, the, 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 the errors of our own, of our own mismanaged lives. Yeah, that all makes sense. And I appreciate, I uh, always appreciate when guests bring in a uh, Thomistic uh, principles of metaphysics into the conversation. Uh, I, I'm reminded of, uh, I was reading this book recently by uh, the philosopher Ed Fazer, uh, Five Proofs mm-hmm. of the Existence of God. And those five proofs that he uses are different from um, uh, Thomas's five proofs um, or five ways. But the first one um, has in common uh, a lot with the first of Thomas's, but he really draws primarily from Aristotle. Um, mm-hmm. And it's basically the first mover one. But, mm-hmm. but he makes this distinction as well that, um, you know, God is the God is the ultimate cause in the sense that God is the, at the base of all, of all being, of all ontology. Um, right. And, and so in that sense, you know, everything that happens um, has its source in God, but only because um, God's existence is necessary for anything to be there. I mean, everything else is contingent upon the existence of God. Mm-hmm. But in applying, in applying God's actions specifically to this nanometers long collection of proteins that causes mm-hmm. viral infections... Um, I mean, what can we say God is the author of? Has, has God uniquely fashioned this virus and, and released it upon the world? Or is, uh, is the virus itself a product of the corruption of nature uh, by our primeval sin, uh, perpetuated in our original sin, um, and God is, is redirecting the effects of our own sin for ultimately for our good, even if we can't mm-hmm. see it right now? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what to say that's, um, God, God can and does do both of these things. Okay. Um, he can, he can intervene in, in, you know, extraordinary ways and, and he can also direct nature's course to his ends and purposes. Um, I mean, and that's, that's not, um, at all an unbiblical thing to think that, that nature itself is somehow, the, the, the servant of God's purposes. I mean, especially in the, the wisdom literature, we see this in a very direct way. In fact, there's a, there's a monstrous German expression. Germans um, were always there first and got to name everything in exegesis, but it's called the Tunergehensusammenhang. And it means the, um, the, the kind of um, interconnection between actions and consequences. Um, so there's, and, and this is all over in the book of Proverbs, Sirach and so forth. I mean, there, there is a sense in which, you know, um, without turning into a pantheist or something, you know, th- these, these people who think it's nature's revenge might be closer to, 
you know, the, the, the truth than they understand. I mean, we, we can reap what we sow. I mean, that's, that's, that's the proverbial wisdom there. Um, so it, it certainly can be that, um, you know, whether, whether God fabricated this, uh, you know, um, out of nothing and, uh, and threw it like a thunderbolt into the world, that's, that's a little harder to, 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 to prove or, or right. sustain or, I mean, it's not, not that we need that either. I mean, he, he can accomplish his purposes based on, on this extraordinary world that he created. Yeah. And I, I think, um, that the last part that you mentioned is, is the part that a lot of secular people need to hear when they criticize quote, religious people, uh, as being superstitious, right? I mean, the, the mm -hmm. argument is rarely if ever, I mean, I'm sure there are some, there are some people out there who, who, who advance the argument that I am mm -hmm. not advancing, but the argument right. that I'm advancing, advancing is not that God, uh, you know, fashioned this in heaven and, and threw it down to earth and, you know, where it landed was Wuhan and it, it sort of expanded out right. from there. Right. I mean, there's, uh, right. there are, there are natural explanations to the origins yeah. of this virus that do not speak to the supernatural explanations because the supernatural origin uh, directs the natural origin, right? Yeah, precisely. I mean, it's, it's in no more competition. I mean, it's why it's the same stumbling block, but I mean, it's, it's, it's like a question, a creation evolution question. I mean, God can, can order, um, you know, natural processes and so forth to, um, you know, uh, to, to attain his designs. And, and these are not incompatible modes of causality. These are complementary modes of causality. Um, so by, by the fact that you're not going to trace back the empirical chain, you know, past the wet markets and then hit God, that, that doesn't mean anything. That's, that's not the order of causality we're talking about. Right. So, yeah, I think that's, that's an important point. I mean, an, an apologetic point that's that, as you say, is often lost. Now, I, I think maybe a, a final question on this topic before we wrap up here is what do you think, I mean, based on the biblical record, based on how God has used um, pandemics before, has used them for his purposes, wh what do you think um, are some plausible things that the church should be thinking about in this pandemic? You know, um, perhaps a greater call to faithfulness, perhaps a reminder of our complete dependence on God, perhaps um, all of the above. But I think there are there are some things that the church should be taking away from this that that go beyond simply let's preserve physical life at all possible costs. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right question to be asking and, and the question that, that we're not really asking. Um, I, I mean, I'd, I'd certainly check the all of above, uh, as you said there. I mean, I, I, I think God has given us an extraordinary moment of self-reflection. I mean, the, the overdrive of divine providence in these moments is, is bewildering. Like every life is touched um, in profound ways, some in very profound ways. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people who are seriously affected in, in, in both good and, and, and painful ways uh, by all of this. It's very, I'm, I mean, in, in my own way, I'm very, very affected. I'm, I'm trapped here, you know, for, for months, I'm unsure of, I've got, a desk full of work in Jerusalem I can't get to and so forth. I mean, so God has interrupted all of our plans and I think we need to let him do that and, and really say, okay, God, I mean, how seriously do you really want to reboot everything in my life, in my family's life, in, you know, in our communities, in our nations, in our society and so forth. I mean, I think that's, that's a big part of the challenge of this is just to, 
to give the space, the freedom to, to ask whether we need to change very fundamental priorities, um, very fundamental projects. Um, I mean, and, and to that extent, you know, it's, it's certainly an invitation to invite God back into uh, a lot of these, you know, a lot of our lives, all of us in, in, in deeper ways, but it's, it's not hard, you know, as a church to look out on society and say, okay, this, this is a society that's moving you know, if we're just talking about natural cycles, okay, in, in terms of a sociological cycle, this is a society that, that is, is courting self-destruction. Um, when do we, we pause and reflect? And in the same way, honestly, I think this is a very important moment of, of, of critical self-reflection for the church. There's, there's, there's grave corruption, wickedness, evil uh, at work in the church. Um, I mean, we, we have the joy of... of uh, living, you know, um, in this uh, wake of an extraordinary ecumenical council. Um, and we have to ask if, you know, if we're accurately, um, I don't know, receiving the, 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 the graces of reform as they should have been and should now be received and so forth. So I think these, these are questions we need to, need to pose pretty seriously, um, you know, with, you know, with, with trust in God, maybe, maybe that's, that's what will come of this moment. It's, it's hard to ignore that it all hit during Lent. I mean, in, in its own way, it's, um, it's a kind of desert experience. It's a fasting experience for the church to live apart from the Eucharist for so long, I think is, is a challenge. Um, reminds us of this incredible word that he speaks. I, um, I'm going to send you in Hosea, um, send you not uh, a famine for bread, but for the word of God. Um, are, are we starving ourselves on, you know, uh, on, on a hunger fast where the word of God doesn't doesn't play a role in our lives? So the, these are the kind of, I guess, foundational the, the foundational examination of conscience. It seems to me is is maybe uh, proper to the moment. Yeah, it's well said, Father. Uh, I'm thinking of the passage in uh, Luke chapter 21, uh, where Jesus is describing some things that will come to pass at the end of times, and it says that, that your salvation is nearer, uh, nearer now than than you thought. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm not necessarily implying that this is the end times. None of us know when the end times is, and and to a degree, I think that question is a, a fruitless one to try to answer. Uh, because we could all be living in the end times and, and not know it. So we need to all be acting, uh, you know, keeping mm -hmm. our keeping our lamps trimmed as if we are living in the end times. I'm also thinking of, I think it's Romans chapter 13, where Paul says that salvation is nearer now. And the, the mm -hmm. fact that our destruction in this way is very near to us and, and mm -hmm. all of us feel vulnerable and afraid. I mean, especially those who are elderly or already infirm, et cetera. Uh, our mm -hmm. destruction physically is very near to mm -hmm. us, which makes us I, I hope, I hope prompts mm -hmm. us to cling ever more closely to our, to our eternal salvation. Um, yeah. a, a final question for you. I don't want to get you in trouble by asking you to comment on any of the, <laughs> uh, the USCCB actions or various diocesan actions here, but I will speak for myself mm -hmm. and say that I've been frustrated by, by many bishops and pastors response to this. And I'm not even going to single out any particular bishops, but I have friends in uh, various parts of the U S who have been denied access to all of the sacraments entirely, uh, you know, mm -hmm. even drive up confessions, banned uh, mm -hmm. infants who are born can't can't even have private baptisms with with, with just a family and godparents. 
I mean, these really, um, what I would call ridiculous, uh, restrictions on the sacraments. And, uh, I've been criticized or maybe not me personally, but I've seen others who think like I do criticize for, you know, wanting to endanger people, et cetera, or being reckless and in pursuit of the sacraments, et cetera. And I think, mm-hmm. I think none of that's true. I think a lot of those criticisms at least um, sort of paint with an overly broad brush. There are certainly people who, who uh, just think that, I don't know, COVID-19 is all a, a hoax or whatever. I mean, that's, that's, right. not, that's not my contention at all. I think my frustration right. is that our bishops should always be our pastors spiritually and be seeking first our spiritual welfare um, and then and only then our physical welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I go to my doctor for my physical welfare. I go to my, my pastor and my bishop for my spiritual welfare. And, right. and what I saw from a lot of bishops, again, not pointing fingers or naming names, what I saw from a lot of bishops was a, um, a concern first and foremost for my physical welfare, but that's not yeah. what I want from my bishop. And so, yeah. so my question for you, cause I don't want, I don't want to get you in trouble, uh, and ask you to say, uh, something you shouldn't or comment on something you shouldn't perhaps. Mm-hmm. My question for you is simply this, um, what's your advice for a lay person like myself? Um, in sort of enduring these, uh, these trials and these frustrations and these impatiences, um, with, uh, with the, the leadership of the church? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think it's a fair question and it's, it's back to where we start a little bit, uh, this, this false force choice between a doctor and a priest, Dr. Ryu and uh, Father Panalu in, um, uh, in Camus. I mean, that's not a choice we should be forced to make. I mean, um, any more than we have to choose between science and, uh, and, and faith. So I, I, I do think there's, there's a very important burden. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll avoid commenting too much, but there's, there's a very important pastoral burden that the, that the church has in, in what is a pretty extraordinary circumstance, but also not an unknown circumstance. I mean, precisely what we're saying. I mean, plagues didn't stop in the Bible. <laughs> they've, uh, they've kept going beyond that. And so the church actually does have experience of this and, and how to deal with this and quarantine experiences as well. I mean, uh, actually in the black death, there were, there were quarantines too and so forth. And, um, you know, there's famous instance of uh, Charles Borromeo saying mass in, uh, in the city square and everyone just um, watching from out their windows and that kind of thing. I mean, whatever, there were creative solutions, but they also understood social distance. They weren't so dumb as, as we like to pretend. So, you know, it, it, it's probably important on the one hand for the church to, to draw on the wealth of her experience and wisdom. Um I mean, for, for the layman, um, I, I think this, this experience, honestly, um, of, uh, you know, being deprived of the sacraments is, it reminds me a lot of, you know, there's this kind of famous passage in uh, Pope Benedict's, um, then Ratzinger, I guess, um, the spirit of the liturgy, um, in which he talks about Eucharistic fasting, um, and uh, the the way in which it can be turned to spiritual profit. Um, he he's speaking, for instance, about um, fasting from the Eucharist uh, in order to to live in communion with those who are separated from the Eucharist and um, pray for you know acknowledge the the wounds in the body of Christ um, and use that that pain and distance from the sacrament um, to to invite a healing within the body, um, the one body of the church. So, I mean, I think maybe there's a way in which 
there's there's a spirituality of fasting, honestly, and even sacramental fasting um, that can um, bring good out of evil. I mean, there's Romans eight twenty eight. It's it's not as though we're ever put in a circumstance by providence that that can't be turned to our profit. Um, even you know when there's there's uh, the failures um, of you know responsible people um, uh, that have created an unfortunate situation. So I think offering the the suffering, the isolation, the the anger, the 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 frustration, the loneliness, all of the things that are kind of wrapped up with this, um, and discovering in that fasting also a new purified hunger for the sacraments um, as something that are a gift. Um, I mean, I think this is, this is a dimension too, is, you know, maybe we can not just have a kind of blase sense about this, but maybe an entitlement um, that needs to be purified too. So I think that maybe those are the, the kinds of reflections, um, the, the orientation we might take to, to trying to live through this moment. Well, thank you for that spiritual counsel, Father. I really appreciate it, and I hope my listeners do as well. For my own part, I'm, I'm really hoping, uh, and, and who can discern the ways of God and the intentions of God, but I'm really hoping that this time of pandemic is a way for the church to, um, to turn inward towards Jesus Christ uh, in the Eucharist at her center, and then be able to turn outward. Because one thing, as we've discussed, one thing this pandemic has really made crystal clear is that the world needs Christ uh, and, and has lost a total regard for supernaturalism. Um, and, yeah. and I think that this pandemic is an opportunity for the church to renew her evangelistic efforts while also uh, refocusing on on her Eucharistic center. So um, that's that's my prayer. Uh, and and I, hopefully that's the prayer of many others in the church as well. So hopefully we can see God carrying out great renewal through his purposes yes. here. Yes. Well, Father Anthony, that's all I have for you today. I really appreciate your time. This has been a great discussion. I really appreciate yeah, your lecture you. as well, which went into some of this stuff in, in uh, much greater and uh, more scholarly detail and, and probably better uh, laid out as well, since you wrote that one and I, I constructed these <laughs> questions for us. <laughs> but so I encourage our listeners to go check that out. It's on the Thomistic Institute uh, podcast feed. It's from April 2nd and it's called Plagues, What We Can Learn from the Bible. Uh, again, Father Anthony uh, is a uh, uh, professor at... Uh, Ecole Biblique uh, in Jerusalem. And so if you want to follow his work there, you definitely can. He's got some great books coming out, has written some good books as well, including, I think, a short um, a short uh, uh, translation of, of a biography of St. Dominic. Is that right, Father Anthony? That's right. George Bernanos. Yeah, that's a classic. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to checking that out. I saw that listed on your works and uh, it looks like a pretty short read, about 70 pages or so. Um, but mm -hmm. I love I love St. Dominic and uh, I love his order, especially. Uh, you guys do great work. So thank you for your work for the church, Father. Uh, and we'll thank talk you. again soon. Okay, thank you.